Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. As money becomes increasingly digital, data is also becoming money. The details of our financial transactions have a lot of value in themselves. This means it's impossible to look at trends in money and payments without considering broader questions about data. How the data is generated, who owns it, who controls it, who regulates it, and so on. And that then brings in other issues like identity, or how our digital systems are constructed, how we share or how we don't share information, and, importantly, of how vulnerable our data economy is to bad actors like hackers or unfriendly states. These are complex questions, and to put them into perspective, I was delighted to have the opportunity to interview Michael Salmoni for this episode of the podcast. Michael is a computer scientist by training. He spent his career looking at disruptive technology across a number of sectors, including music, ticketing, encyclopedias, and most recently, payments and money. Michael, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, your company, and how you got into payments? Well, thank you, Paul, for inviting me. Uh, My name is Michael Salmoni. I work at Equins Worldline, which is the largest uh, payment and transaction processor in Europe. And with our soon coming acquisition of Ingenico, we'll be the fourth largest in the world. So we have a big interest in payments, as you can imagine. Uh, Personally, I actually studied computer science and then went on to work at IBM uh, with a lot of transformation projects, how technology changed the publishing industry, the music industry, uh, ticketing, uh, etc., which was quite exciting. And now, of course, I'm having a lot of fun uh, working in the latest industry, which is being totally disrupted and changed through technology, which is payments and banking. Payments obviously been in the news a lot this week with the, the Wirecard uh, scandal and uh, insolvency. I'd like to ask you about that in, in a bit uh, on, on the podcast. But uh, first first of all, could we go back in, in history? And, and uh, I'd like to ask you about the... Um, the evolution of payments regulation in Europe. Europe has been a standard setter in some ways in in payments because of the payments directives that were introduced over the last decade and a half. What you know? What drove these um, initiatives at the European level? Why were they brought in, and what was the thinking behind it? I mean, that's uh, a thing we're a little bit proud of. I think can be a little bit proud of in Europe that um, we have one of the best infrastructures in the world. You know, very few geographies have sort of instant payments immediately addressable in a unified way to every bank and to every account and uh, et cetera, et cetera, at at quite low cost, if I may say so. Uh, uh, Other countries who are in a very different place to that. But it's uh, also due to the regulator having really played a very active role and actually been pushing some innovations like, for example, opening all banks, which is done nowhere else in the world. It's only in Europe did the regulator take the very bold step of enforcing uh, all all banks uh, uh, to open up their data in a controlled way, of course. And uh, privacy is another thing where I think Europe may be leading the world. So I think there are a number of areas where I think uh, Europe is ahead, especially in payments, absolutely. Okay, thank you for explaining that. So, in general, you think these initiatives have uh, succeeded? They've put Europe, uh, you know, ahead of the competition globally. I think those examples I cited, like uh, open banking and privacy, have or are, have or are in the process of putting uh, Europe ahead. Definitely, I mean, you can see that 
uh, a number of other countries, even those that have been, had a very different attitude to privacy, for example, the US, um, are now beginning to think, well, maybe a bit more control, a bit more user-centric uh, view, a bit more uh, allowing the, the user to, to uh, have some, some say in which data is being used where. Uh, is is uh, is being recognised, and very often the model that countries uh, are adopting is the one uh, proposed by Europe. Nobody hugely loves GDPR, but nobody's come up with a better model yet, as far as I know. And that's why a lot of countries uh, are are adopting it. And the same applies also for open banking. Uh, not all the banks like it, although now the majority absolutely do. And uh, one can see that this model, again invented in Europe. Uh, is now conquering the world. Uh, it's in Turkey, in Japan, in uh, all of Asia, in Africa now, in Nigeria, uh, in the US, in South America, everywhere open banking is becoming the new big thing. And that started in Europe. So I think we have a reason to be a little bit proud of what we're doing and to be a little bit proud of our regulator too. How challenging was it to introduce this uh, single European payments area, given the fact that when I look at the Bank for International Settlements red books, which are kind of the Bibles on payments, uh, payments historically have been regulated almost entirely on a national basis. And there are some quite significant differences in the way the payments infrastructure uh, works in different countries, including in different European countries. Mm. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, we had massive fragment fragmentation in Europe. You know, we had 27 different uh, standards and protocols and uh, messaging systems and everything, which, of course, is ridiculous, right? You, If I increasingly want to send money uh, uh, to pay for my holiday home in France or to, to pay my bills while I'm in the UK or while I'm where uh, we increasingly want a single way of doing uh, things in Europe in a, in a harmonized way. In fact, we probably even want an increasingly global uh, way of doing things. And we can talk about Libra and other things in a moment, if you, if you like. But uh, it, so it was certainly clear that we needed a more uniform way of doing things in Europe. And that's why the regulators stepped in and said, let us do SEPA. And let us only do one way of paying uh, credit transfers, direct debits, etc., in a harmonized way in Europe. And that was quite a heavy lift that had to be done. But I think everybody's the better off for it afterwards. A couple of years ago, the European Automated Clearinghouse Association issued a, a white paper in which it said that the transition to instant payments, higher demands for interoperability and reach at a pan-European level, as well as an escalating competitive environment involving new industry players, are all adding additional layers of complexity to the existing financial infrastructure. Would you agree with that assessment of the you know, particularly the layers of complexity that are being added by change? Uh, I'm not sure I would, quite honestly. I think it is reduced complexity because now we have one standard so, ever, so that you get economies of scale. Um, uh, you don't have to, uh, especially if you're global corporate or, or, or someone who deals in any multinational or even SME who wants to uh, do some business uh, uh, in France, and uh, uh, you really welcome the fact that there is now one currency and one harmonized way of paying and of getting paid. So I think it's actually reduced the complexity. Okay. Uh, let, let me ask you about the Wirecard scandal. Uh, you know, on the basis of what I've read, it seems to be a story of a fraud uh, and of you know, hiding um, you know, some important uh, financial information from auditors. Um, what uh, impact do you think that scandal is likely to have on the broader European payments business? 
I mean, I can't comment on, on Wirecard for, for uh, obvi obvious reasons. The, the only thing that I'm a bit sad about is Wirecard was one of the, unfortunately, few global champions we have in Europe, uh, also in the, in the payment area. So, of course, it's rather sad to, to have that story, especially in, in that area. So uh, we hope we will have many other champions, and the fintech industry is doing very well in Europe. So I'm confident we'll get other ones. But... Uh, that, of course, was uh, was not helpful. Also, not helpful for the share culture, which, is, for example, in Germany hasn't isn't very developed, and that's uh, taken another hit because of that. So, um, but you don't think that there are any, there are sort of any broader um, reasons for concern about the evolution of fintech and payments in Europe? No, absolutely not. I mean, the, the fintech uh, area is absolutely thriving, and there is a huge uh, innovation culture where people are developing new ways of paying and not only paying, but all the services around it. And uh, Europe and the UK especially, but also, of course, uh, America and Asia are on an absolute rampage to try and find new ways of serving the customer better, of uh, providing services in an innovative way and cheaper, and that uh, that is only going to get bigger. One of the criticisms I've heard of initiatives like open banking is that the uh, competitive play, playing field has been skewed too far in favor of the tech firms who you know have been given access to uh, banks um, transaction data and banks haven't been getting enough in return perhaps they haven't been exploiting the level playing field as much as they should have done what would you say to those criticisms do you think they're fair i do i think that's absolutely a fair criticism uh, the, the 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 banks were forced to open up and put an api uh, uh, on their system so any third party can access uh, transaction data can initiate a payment all for free and that was uh, important to do because open systems are the future and that leads to a massive innovation but it was very unsided uh, one sided it was only the banks that were forced to do this and so Google can rummage around in all your data, subject to your consent, but there's no way that the banks can have a look at uh, Google data. Uh, so it is totally one way, and uh, there needs to be a more level playing field. And uh, I think that's one of the topics we wanted to talk about. The uh, EU has totally recognized that and is now uh, addressing exactly that problem, how to make a level playing field and make data more generally shareable and not just an obligation for banks. So could you talk a bit more about how the European authorities are planning to level that playing field? Sure. Um, uh, as you uh, rightly commented, uh, the, the, there was an imbalance in that the banks were forced to open up, but the other ones didn't. So other industries could look at uh, your transaction data, but the banks could not. And so it was recognized that this is an incredibly powerful model to open up, but it should be done on a more level way. And that is exactly what is happening now. It, not too noticed, I think, by the media, but I think uh, uh, very important uh, was a paper in February of this year where the Commission published uh, a, a European strategy for data. So what they are now creating is a data market. We already have a market for capital and for uh, the free flow of goods and the free flow of people so that people can cross unhindered if they want to from one member state to another and money can move from one state to another, see our discussion about SEPA, etc. So that's all been addressed. And now the next step is to make data flow freely across Europe under consent, of course, only and only with uh, uh, the uh, proper controls in there. 
but that is the next step uh, that uh, that data will be opened up from all industries and not just from banking and that's going to have, have a huge impact so can you give us any um, insights into how this might work in practice uh, gladly. I, there, there are going to be two uh, main consequences of what, what, what I'm seeing, and uh, we can get into that in a moment. But just to quickly describe the sort of regulatory timeline on this, um, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of this year, the first sort of high-level strategy was, was published by the Commission. At the end of this year, we're going to have a Digital Service Act package with a whole slew of, uh, uh, of uh, regulations on, across all sorts of industries. The beginning of next year, we're going to have thing, a thing called uh, an Implementation Act on high-value data sets. High-value data sets is the data being held by administrations and governments. So how do you open up all the data that's been held uh, in governments and in the health sector and in administration? And those are, of course, very high value. So how do you open those up in a controlled and safe way, subject to uh, only, of course, if the user consents to this? And finally, at the end of next year, we're going to have a thing called a Data Act. And that is the final uh, uh, act, if you like, uh, in, uh, in the process where uh, basically we're going to get PSD2 for all industries. So that's the, that's the timeline. But um, uh, you were asking more about uh, the, the consequences of what, what this means. So um, th there are two areas uh, th that I would point to. Um, one is that APIs, to put it technically, are going to be put on top of all industries. So you can access uh, Google data, Facebook data, health data, data from your smart meter, from your connected car, from all industries, uh, you will uh, be able to, to access that data. And then, uh, uh, just like in the fintech model, where they accessed the bank data and constructed new services for users and increased competition and, uh, and reduced costs, we're going to get that across all industries. And we're also going to get a mashup of these, um, of these APIs. And just to explain what, what, what that is, Uber, for example, is a mashup. It basically takes your location data, the driver's location, uh, the maps from Google, and, uh, and, and your payment uh, uh, API and mashes those up to provide a new service. So Uber is basically just a mashup of about four APIs to provide the new service. So you can see how powerful it is that with just a few APIs, you can create truly revolutionary services. And this is going to happen across all industries. So this is going to be really transformational. So this is a threat to the, the walled garden platform model where, for example, if you want to put an app on... Apple's App Store, you have to pay Apple thirty percent of the of the proceeds of your of your new business. Is that is that how to understand it? Well, uh, I won't talk about a threat to Apple, but it certainly is a threat to um, closed systems. This is to open the world, open the world of data, and it will indeed make it more difficult for those who, uh, huge platforms to maintain the monopoly that they currently have. I mean, for example, we are all pretty locked in. I, I basically have to go to Facebook because that's where all my friends are. So if I want to message them, I'm, I basically uh, have to go to Facebook. If I want to con connect to my business colleagues, I have to go to LinkedIn because uh, these big platforms have basically captured the market. But the world needn't be organized like that. Uh, for example, with email, 
I don't, we don't all have to go to the same email service. I may use Gmail, you may use Yahoo, and somebody else may use web.de or whatever, and they can still talk to each other because they're open standards. And this is the world I think we should be heading to, that instead of having a few fairly monopolistic uh, closed platforms, we have an open world where you have a choice. And if there's some new uh, innovative social media comes along, which actually has lots of fantastic services, they should be given a chance to enter the market. And you can still connect to all your friends because the API of my uh, new innovative social media services connects to Facebook or to WhatsApp. And therefore, I still can reach all my friends, but actually get a new competitor in the market. So this will actually also break uh, maybe these current uh, winner-takes-all uh, uh, structures that we're currently seeing in Europe or in the world. Uh, thank you for explaining that. So presumably this helps address some of the concerns that many countries have had, had about the way some of these digital uh, empires are taxed or not taxed uh, you know, in certain countries and you know, the, way, the way they can move their revenues around uh, kind of at will to, to you know, reduce their tax liability. Well, the, the tax issue is, is maybe another one that's got more to do with whether you do taxing at source and whether you permit sort of, uh, uh, that's another issue. The, the thing that I would mainly like to, to address is that we're the, the platform economy, which has been a huge success and has yes. led to fantastically powerful models for the benefit of everybody, right? I mean, we all use Amazon and Apple and Facebook and and, sure. and the Chinese all use uh, Tencent and Alibaba. So they, they're obviously are providing fantastic value. But I think what everybody's increasingly not so happy with is that you get locked in. There's this yes. concentration that the winner takes all. You don't get really a choice. And, uh, and, and this is what, what, uh, what will be opened up. And I think that's that's a huge potential of this development. Okay, and how does this tie into the debate over digital identity? Uh, will we all have kind of portable digital identities in the future that we can operate ourselves, you know, over and above these uh, big platforms? Well, that's a lovely topic you raised there, and one of my absolute hobbies, I must admit. <laughs> so thank you for. <laughs> uh, this is a topic where I'm afraid the regulator hasn't yet stepped up, and I'm really hoping they will soon. Because unless we really improve the way we do identity on the internet, we are really going to have problems. We are still using passwords, for God's sake, a 1970s technology, and nobody can remember their password and ha or has the same one everywhere or has to write it down. And uh, what a nightmare. And there are so, much, so many better solutions of how to do identity in a, in a, a risk-based way, for example, so that you... You only get asked for a few factors depending on how risky the transaction is. Like, for example, if I buy a coffee every day at the same place, I don't want to authenticate myself with a two-factor authentication every time. That should be absolutely seamless. Yes. Uh, so I want a zero or half-factor authentication. Whereas if I buy a house, I would please like a seven-factor authentication because I do that once in my lifetime and it's a real big bit of money. So let's have some dynamic uh, authentication, some intelligent authentication, something that uses the data that uh, uses modern biometrics, etc., and not and please let us get away from this world of passwords. So we desperately need to do something about identity, and uh, I'm hoping the regulator will come to that at some stage. Maybe the coronavirus outbreak and its impact is uh, maybe the initial response of governments was to deal with everything on a national level, but uh, maybe uh, well, hopefully we can see that you know, there, there's a there's a benefit in addressing some of these 
questions of identity, human mobility at a at a supranational level. Let's let's hope so. I mean, it is a big uh, big ask, right? Because there are so many identity systems around in the world. I mean, for example, Germany has fifty eight different identity systems, if you can believe it. Just Germany. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know. Uh, replacing that with a more harmonized way, even in Europe, let alone worldwide, is not going to be easy. But we have to do this. We have to do a more harmonized, more secure, more convenient way of doing identity than the way we currently do. Otherwise, yeah, I have to- uh, quite honestly, to come back to our discussion of before, it'll be sign in with Facebook that we will all be doing. And uh, we can all think whether whether that is what we want. So very interesting initiatives taking place at the European level. Where does the UK fit into this, you know, given Brexit? Uh, is the UK kind of thinking along similar lines as far as you can see, or is it is it not? Well, one thing, one area where I think the UK is really forging ahead is in open banking. You know, this really lovely idea, as I tried to indicate before, um, is uh, somewhat stuck in the weeds in some areas of Europe where there's massive debates about how to standardize the API and how to make the SCA more convenient. And everybody's totally locked into incredibly technical discussions. Whereas the UK has implemented and has put in place an implementation entity. And they've just decided this is the way we do API, this we do authentication. They've also thought about all the non-technical operational issues, like how do you manage disputes? And there are going to be lots of disputes initially in the new system, obviously. And how do you manage fraud? And how do you, you know, all the things that are necessary, they've thought about all of those and uh, implemented them in a very structured and, and, and very forceful way. And that model is now actually conquering the world. So uh, although Europe invented it and Britain is Brexiting, it may look as though the, the, the UK model is now being implemented in Saudi Arabia, in Japan, in Africa, uh, or everywhere else. And so I'm hoping that Europe will wake up to this and say, okay, we need to stop all these very technical discussions and do a pan-European scheme, which will then be a model which we can use throughout the world. Okay, Um, let's talk a bit about uh, stablecoins, Facebook's Libra project. Uh, There's been an explosion of interest in this topic because everybody can see that payments are moving very rapidly to Know, from cash to digital, um, how important do you think these discussions are and where, where do you think the, you know, the key trends are? I mean, uh, Libra certainly put the fear of God into a lot of people, which has been very helpful, I think. <laughs> so a lot of people have woken up and say, oops, uh, do we really want a privately owned global currency and a global way of paying? Or shouldn't this actually be more state-run and more government-run uh, rather than uh, uh, rather than Mr. Zuckerberg uh, deciding how, how this works? Uh, that isn't quite fair because, of course, Libra is actually a consortium of many companies. But still, the question is, do we want a government-run or, uh, or more of a privately organized uh, um, uh, economy, especially in payments? And that's why I think that's been a wake-up call to a lot of banks and a lot of central banks on uh, on the needs that Libra has rightly been addressing. I mean, what Libra has done is basically saying, we want to make paying as easy as sending a message. I can send you a WhatsApp really easily, and I can attach a picture really easily. I can send you a voice really easily. Why can't I just send you money re- just as easily? And I think that's an absolute fair thing to ask for nowadays. And that is what Libra, I think, is uh, addressing in a nutshell. 
and the banking industry and the payment industry and maybe also the regulators and central banks have to decide what the answer is. Yes, it's been noticeable that uh, Facebook's attempts to get it sort of in within WhatsApp payment service uh, operational in, in its two largest markets, India and Brazil, have been blocked in both cases by the local central banks. But uh, you think this is an inevitable trend towards something as seamless as that? Um, maybe it's just a question of who gets to operate it and run it. I think it's an absolute uh, understandable requirement that everybody wants to be able to send money as easily as sending a message. I think that is an inevitable development which will happen one way or another. I don't think it's going to be run by a private enterprise, neither IBM nor SAP nor Facebook. I think this should be uh, more controls uh, through, uh, through national governments and through central banks, and they will come up with an answer. I'm, I'm abs- absolutely confident. And the wake-up call has now been made. Uh, I mean, I don't see Facebook passing the regulatory tests uh, across Europe. But for example, in third world countries, I'm hearing that a number of countries are thinking out loud, you know, rather than maybe using their slightly less stable national uh, uh, currency, uh, maybe uh, using a a Libra coin might actually be a good idea. So there's actually a threat, uh, not so much in Europe, I think, or in the West. But in developing economies, that uh, that uh, Facebook may may and Libra and privately owned currencies may take control there, and that has a lump, number of consequences, which really need to be thought through very carefully. Yeah. What, what do you think about the public-private model that China seems to be pursuing with uh, its proposed introduction of a of a state digital currency, but using private firms to distribute it and run the payments technology? Yeah, I I mean, China is a special case because, of course, they have a very dominant uh, government-run economy. It is not really the market economy as as we know it in the West. So uh, it is only natural there that the government basically imposes uh, a solution on everybody, which also has the rather nice side effect in a time where uh, cash is decreasing um, uh, to provide a slightly less anonymous means of payment. Uh, if, uh, the, the, I don't think I'm revealing any secrets here that the Chinese government quite likes to keep tabs on its people, right, with a social score and with the, uh, the, the various uh, things. They have a, have a bit of a different understanding about privacy uh, th- th- than we do. So uh, getting rid of this cash or reducing cash, which is a totally anonymous way of paying, and replacing it with some state-run means of paying where you can trace who is paying whom uh, can be very much in the interests of a government who who thinks like that. What what impact is uh, are are China's uh, plans in this area having on neighboring Asian countries like Japan? Well, I know that Japan is pretty scared of China, always has been in all areas. And this new resurgence of, of China, of course, uh, is, uh, is a bit of a worry, this huge dominant neighbor. But the good thing is, if you're scared and if you see a neighbor really doing very aggressive things, it also gets you motivated to start maybe making a few changes that are necessary. And since you speak about Japan, Japan was actually one of the first countries in the world to introduce instant payment. They had that about 30 or 40 years ago one of the first in the world to have that. But now, of course, the system is creaking a bit, right? And nowadays, you need to have APIs, you need to have wider access to third parties, not only banks, uh, uh, and a few other things. So 
the Japanese government is now uh, on the verge of uh, of planning a new uh, payment infrastructure throughout the whole country. And so that is something that maybe was sparked by also some of the developments across the world, in, including China. And that's accelerated that process, which is also the good. Okay. Um, the last two financial crises have come from you know, the first one in 2008 were, were, uh, was down to the investment banking system and uh, too much speculation in the property markets. The latest one seems to be on a smaller scale uh, to date, but it's uh, you know, caused by a pandemic. Um, I heard you say recently you think the next one could come from an entirely different source. You know, what is that and, and why? Okay. Uh, Yes, uh, as you as you say, the last one was was the sort of subprime market and all the uh, underfinancing and, and credit risks. And this one, I wouldn't say it's actually smaller. Some uh, this is actually about a sort of thirty percent dip sometime, which is uh, absolutely unheard of. But the next one, I, indeed, I can well believe to come from somewhere totally different and uh, from cybercrime. The the uh, the cyber criminals are. Uh, incredibly sophisticated and professional and industrialized. Many people think that the cyber criminal is the student in a hoodie sitting in his mother's basement and is hacking away at his computer. That is the totally the wrong way of thinking about cyber criminals. Cyber crime is now run by companies who have a CEO, who have a personnel department, who have an R&D department, who have a car park, who have a pension scheme. <laughs> they are like a proper company, except their finance department calculates business cases of where it's cheapest to break in with the biggest returns and where the R&D department uh, looks at, uh, at, at what, what innovative ways are there for, for getting into, into backbones. Uh, so these people are incredibly professional, incredibly organized. They, are, they do use outsourcing uh, so they have very specialized entities. There are, there are companies who are specialized in hacking into computers. There are others who specialized in forging cards. There are others who specialized in this and that. And they all network together. And it is an incredibly professional industry. And we have to understand that we have to defend against this. This will break uh, break an economy if we don't get to grips on that. I think, well, I can say absolutely clearly that the payments and the banking industry are one of the best that have been defending against hacker attacks in the past compared to others. If you look at the scandals and hacks on, on other industries, they are massively more. But it is very hard to defend against these incredibly professional, organized uh, criminals. And therefore, we have to do better identity, for example, not use passwords to get back to our old thing share more data between us. So for example, if, if somebody does get hacked, just like the airline industry, we have to tell the others what happened. So we all learn together and not try and hide it. There are a number of things we need to do urgently, because otherwise, the next crisis will be cyber criminals bringing the uh, bringing the economy down. I can I can uh, uh, very well imagine that. And there are a lot of uh, indications of why that may, may be the case indeed. So better authentication uh, techniques and more open sourcing of um, programs. Is that is that how you know, did I understand you correctly? Those are two elements. Uh, yeah. there, there, there are plenty more. Uh, but I, I mentioned the example of the airline industry. You know, the airline industry is incredibly safe, right? You get very, very few accidents, uh, thank God. And one of the reasons is because every time when an airline does go down, there is an, uh, an absolute rampage to try and find out what the problem was and how does one cure it and prevents and make sure that that never happens again. And that only happens because everybody, sh you know, nobody tries to hide a plane crash. 
They all the it doesn't matter which airline crashed. They all share the experience with the others, and we in the banking and payments industry must get there too. We must be uh, must really uh, share uh, experiences because if some some bank is getting attacked from somewhere in uh, and it must inform the other banks so that we all can protect each other mutually, and we're not doing nearly enough of that. Yeah. Um, and as a final question, Michael, um, you've worked in your career um, on, on different technologies. You, you told me you worked in, in the past on new digital music technology like MP3s on the digitization of encyclopedias. But, you know, looking forward over the next decade or two, where do you think the most exciting you know, areas of technology are? Where, where are they going to be the biggest changes? Where are the, the, the biggest opportunities? Okay. Um... Uh, my personal opinion, which is not shared by everybody and certainly not everybody also in my company, but uh, I personally am not as convinced about blockchain as a number of people are. So I don't think that's the big, going to be the big disruptor, but that's a topic for in, in itself. We'll have a discussion. <laughs> I mean, especially in payments, which is an incredibly high volume uh, 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 business um, where where trust has, I think, already been very well organized. So I'm, I'm not sure that uh, uh, some people have been predicting that blockchain will totally disrupt payments. And I think the developments have, have shown that that's, uh, that is the case. So I don't think it's it's blockchain. Um, what is clearly going to be a game, a game changer, apart from the topics we talked about, like the uh, um, uh, open systems now becoming the, the new normal, uh, instead of uh, everybody doing their own thing in their own industry and uh, new, new identity. Um, there are some very exciting, uh, just basic technologies, which are very exciting. And just to mention quantum computing, for example, you know, if and when quantum computing really works, that will crack en encryption. So everywhere where we have a padlock on our browser, or any chip cards which we use, everything is based on encryption now. And if that is broken, because quantum computers can hack that, there's a thing called Shor's algorithm, so one already knows how to do that, but the technology isn't, isn't ripe yet. So those things are things obviously to be clearly watched in the future, but those are still a few years away, so I think we can sleep well. All right. A fascinating chat, Michael. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. listening to this new Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.